Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Mala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for this hour. Uh, we welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV. We'll do our best to answer live and certainly after the show. It is my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He is the founder and CEO of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to publications such as Harvard Business Review, Inc., and many others. Often I see him now on Fox Business and CNBC. And he is, uh, in my humble opinion, one of the top futures to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupting. Hey, thanks a lot, and welcome here to my co-host, Bala Ashtar, one of the top followers on Twitter. He's the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, number one follower for CIOs and CMOs around the world, author himself, and more importantly, one of the most followed and endeared members on Twitter. So we are live here at Times Square. What, who do we have on today? What's going on, Bala? Sounds like a very exciting show around marketing. Yeah, it's our pleasure to have Mark Miller, who's a co-author of a new book, Legacy in the Making, Building a Long-Term Brand to Stand Out in a Short-Term World. Mark is also the founder of the Legacy Lab, a thought leadership and consulting practice that explores how brands can create legacy uh, in the here and now. He's also the chief strategy officer at Team One, uh, Publicist Group's Global Luxury and Premium Brand Communication Division. Working for more than 20 years in the communication industry, Mark has become the go-to guy for global brands seeking enduring relevance. Mark's thought leadership has been recognized in North America by many of the most significant uh, competition in marketing and advertising, such as the ARF David Ogilvy Award for Research Excellence, Jay Scheid Awards for Strategic Excellence, and the Elfie Awards given to Marketing Effectiveness. You can follow Mark on Twitter at M-A-R-K-M-I-L-L-E-R-L-A. Welcome, Mark, to Disrupt TV. Thank you both. You've done a lot and you wear multiple hats. I have to cut your bio short, sorry. We only have a few minutes. <laughs> so, hey Mark, I mean, you've done something really unique and with what you're doing with Team One and Legacy Lab, I wanna hear like, what inspired you to start it, why you're doing it, and uh, what kind of traction you've gotten so far to date. So let's start with that. Absolutely, so uh, as was mentioned, I've been at a place called Team One, uh, principally an ad agency based in Los Angeles, though today I'm here uh, not in sunny LA, but in cold uh, New York. And um, I started this process in and around 2012, the, the legacy work inside of Team One. Uh, there were three reasons that I began doing the work. Uh, I was doing some work for an automotive company, a famous iconic brand, uh, Lexus, and some work for a famous iconic hotel company called the Ritz-Carlton. Lexus was getting ready to turn 25 years old in 2012 and Ritz-Carlton was not far away from turning 30 years old, and they looked at their places very differently. Lexus felt that 25 years was too young to focus on, that if they harped on 25 years worth of accomplishments, brands like BMW and Mercedes may talk about, look how far you still have to go, not how far they have come. And the Ritz-Carlton saw it very differently, which is better to be the brand new something than the 30-year-old anything. And yet two very famous, successful, iconic brands that were the envy of many of the upstarts who wished that in 25 or 30 years they could do what those brands have done. Uh, concurrently, the agency I was working at, Team One, was getting ready to turn 25 years old. 
and questioning its own relevance. The advertising world was changing. Uh, new technologies, new platforms, new boutique companies, media companies behaving like ad agencies and talent companies behaving like creative agencies. And finally, uh, I was about to become a dad for the first time. And that really made me think about what was I doing? What was I accomplishing? More than just working today, what was I working for? And those three elements together compelled me or inspired me to look at time, place, history, and building things not just for the moment, but with significance that would last a lifetime. Uh, as for how the book is doing, um, there's tremendous interest with so many companies going into bankruptcy or decline. Uh, Radio Shack, Sears, Neko Candy. So my personal interest and preoccupation has become um, a compelling platform for the debate about business that lasts for more than simply a moment in time. Do you think uh, an element of uh, endurance and, 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 and lasting long uh, is a function of how well you're able to articulate a story? Uh, I, I think it was Steve Jobs who said the most powerful person in business is the storyteller. Can you share some of your interesting stories that's happened to you while in this industry? And what are some of the secret elements and traits of folks that can compete and win over a long period? One of the most fascinating pieces and exciting pieces about this work for me is I've had the opportunity to meet some, uh, some leaders that I've admired for many years. Um, whether it's Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia, Reshma Saujani, the founder of Girls Who Code, uh, Deb Dugan, the re-founder of the Red Organization, uh, Richard Lewis, the re-founder of uh, the Championships Wimbledon. So um, global leaders, local leaders, founders, re-founders of organizations. And certainly one of the things that I felt that I learned through the exercise is there are plenty of leaders who look at their organizations in very conventional ways. For mm -hmm. example, um, run an organization and continue to do what has always worked well. Uh, repeat the past because if things go badly, who could ever blame you for repeating the past? On the other side of the equation, we, we ran into leaders who would revile the past. Uh, I just moved into a new job. I plan to be here for three years and then move on to my next role. And all I wanna do in my short tenure is change things and make my mark. They, they think the choice is repeat the past or revile it. And we met people, the ones that I had mentioned, Yvonne and Reshma and Deb and Richard, who look at these things in a different way, which is how can we reconcile the paradox? What pieces of the past can we pull forward? How can we aim for something that's more enduring than simply 15 minutes worth of fame? And how do we make sure that in not looking at the past as a, an anchor, but looking at it as a compass, how can we create history every single day? And is storytelling a part of that? Absolutely. Um, but I would, I would add to the equation, it's not just saying lovely words and writing manifestos and having credos. It's behaving in accordance with the things that you perpetuate. If you're going to have a lovely story to tell, make sure that every day you behave uh, in such a manner that we believe the story that you're writing. Sure, you have to live your story, absolutely. And, absolutely. and, this, and this is really important, right? You're dealing with iconic brands. And these iconic brands all have a mission and a purpose that people are willing to pay massive premiums for, right? In many cases, this is really the brand value behind them, that story, how they view the world. And I just, I'm just really curious, right? You, no one iconic brand seems to operate in the same way. So how do you reconcile all this? 
It, it was fascinating that through the research, we distilled what we called five principles of the modern legacy maker, uh, effectively the modern legacy mindset. Um, the ones who were doing things that had the ability to endure over a long time. And the five pieces basically work like this. Um, instead of thinking as an organizational man or woman, uh, you would think as a leader pursuing something that was personally important to you. So this wasn't just about doing something out of a passion alone. It wasn't just about doing something to make money alone. It was about doing something that would make a durable difference. And it came from a very personal point of view. You, you can't delegate that to 30 people and just say, by consensus, this organization will run on what we all want to do. It has to be an organization led by someone that's lighting the way. So um, the sort of first principle of it is it has to be very personal from the founder or refounder on down. The second piece, as we discussed a moment ago, is it has to be behavioral. Uh, live your words. Don't just write words, but write words to live by and behavior beliefs. And so if personal and behavioral are sort of the two first pillars, then being influential is the next piece. And that is not just telling people, repeat after me, but getting people to buy into what you believe and helping people to perpetuate your story forward. So influence is incredibly powerful. The, the fourth element is this notion of being unconventional. So if the old world model was, let's be the best at what we do, uh, today's enduring model is be the only ones who do what you do. And then finally, the last piece is about doing it perpetually. So the brands that did something famous once and repeat the same story over and over again and say, 100 years ago, we once did something famous. Well, if you're reading your history, you're not occupied with writing it every day. And so sort of the last element of it is thinking perpetually. So be personal, be behavioral, be influential, be unconventional, and be perpetual in your pursuit. So this is how you help your organization. This is how you help them. You're basically letting them rediscover themselves, understand what made them successful, successful and, get them, and get them to the next level. Absolutely. I, I think, as I said, there's a, a funny reality where people think it's um, hang on to the past or pursue the future, and they don't think about ways to reconcile the two. And we really think the power is in long-term thinking. Uh, an analogy that I sometimes like to share is, if you're in the middle of an ocean and a gust of wind comes along, short-term thinker just gets out of the way. You think about survival in the moment. Who, who knows if there will be a future if I can't get through today? Whereas the long-term thinker says, I'm going to get out of the way, but I'm not going to get off course. Because where, because I know where I want to go, I'm going to move in the moment to get to the next step. And so it seems counterintuitive, but actually long-term thinking is the best strategy for short-term thinking because you won't just survive, you have the potential to thrive in perpetuity. Sure, sure. That's amazing. Mark, you know, nowadays we all carry a computer in our pocket and, uh, you know, uh, we're mobile, we're social. Uh, we expect more immersive experiences to spend in augmented and virtual reality has doubled from last year to this year. And it's looking that it will or forecast show it may be 10x in the next two to three years. You have wearables and you know, your glass and your watch and basically anything that can connect will, <laughs> the people and things. How has this technology or the fusion of all these cloud, mobile, social, augmented reality, AI, how has this changed the way you shape the narrative and work with companies to build iconic, long-lasting brands? It's a, it's a great question and a full transparency as you can appreciate because I work in an ad industry an industry that requires contemporary, not just thinking, but contemporary tools and platforms to compete, 
technology is all around us. Um, whether you're a hundred year old organization or an entrepreneur leading a brand new organization, using modern platforms and technologies to speak to today's consumers is incredibly uh, relevant and, and in fact important. And yet our point of view, when you think about building things that last a long time, are to understand the meaningful difference between um, tools of the moment and as you say, um, uh, ambitions um, and, and, and principles that are meant to be uh, timeless forever. And so my perspective and the point of view of the thinking and the writing of the book is to last a long time, you need an ambition that's a forever ambition. Um, you can't just be in the business of selling more widgets. You need to be in the business of doing something that's more meaningful. I think Simon Sinek talks about people buying what we believe more than what we make. Right. And if you subscribe to that point of view, then the role of technology is there are platforms and tools to help us achieve that today in ways we never could have many years ago. Um, there's a story we tell in the book about an organization called It Gets Better. It Gets Better is a platform that unites people around the notion of eliminating hate. Um, it was inspired by a story of a young man who was bullied at school, who was bullied to the point that he killed himself. It was a very sad story. And uh, someone had remarked online in response to the news story, I, I wish you would have been around longer because you would appreciate that as you get older and you gain perspective, being bullied hurts at the time, but you realize that you rise above it. There are more important, more substantial things in life. And so Dan Savage and his uh, contributors and collaborators created a social platform to unite people around the notion of eliminating hate, of telling kids that as you get older, um, life gets better. And they made a series of videos. They posted those videos on YouTube and then Lady Gaga got involved and then President Obama got involved and then the office on NBC got involved. And what did they do? They took a timely principle, eliminate hate and use modern technology to galvanize people in a way that we never could have many years ago. Brilliant. Brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that, that, that is amazing. And, and I think it's the stories like that that make this book special. Right. I mean, people get real things that they can grasp around it to understand why legacy is so important. This takes things past the, the iconic brand. Um, so let's talk about technology. How's that changing the way the brands um, embody themselves, put themselves in, in the moment um, and, and live to their brand values? And I'm sure there's a lot of been great examples of brands who may be digital that don't reflect the legacy values and a little bit of brand and channel conflict along the way. Uh, maybe there's some lessons there to be learned. Well, one of the other pieces I particularly like uh, about the application of technology and building things at last is we used to operate in an environment where brands felt that they owned everything. Um, they had a story to tell and it was theirs to tell. They would share with you only what they chose to, that they would lead and you would follow it. It's not surprising that we called consumers targets because they effectively had bullseyes on them. We would make things and aim them at them exactly and hope that they did you know exactly what we wanted and they would fall in line um and yet we now live in a world where the brands that live on the stories live on are the ones where consumers feel like they're not just consumers they're owners of the brand um they're not just recipients of what we sell but they're co-conspirators um potentially co-authors of brands and i believe that's one of the other beautiful things about technology it gives consumers some power in the equation. And the marketers and brands that try to live in the old world that say consumers have no voice in what we do here, I think is to be totally, yeah, we're totally out of touch with the times. So I love that about technology, which is, it not only democratizes, it effectively allows outsiders to come in, um, to not just be targets on the receiving end, but as we say, 
um, participants in building stories, passing stories show, forward, and sharing them. And I think that's a, a vital role for technology for today and for years to come. Sure. So according to the World Economic Forum, Mark, next year, a third of humanity will be 18 years or younger. And according to Pew, one in five US adults are never offline. So the impact of technology literally use their smart devices, alarm clocks, and are only offline when they're asleep. So how do luxury brands stay relevant with Gen Z or millennials or a generation where you're a digital native and you expect to be connected with the brand at all times? I'm going to lean into the, the values and, and the discipline of the modern legacy thinker. And I'll, I'll give some practical examples to bring it to life. But when we talk about the notion of uh, leadership has to be personal. Um, I love talking to Yvonne Chouinard. Yvonne Chouinard is the founder of the brand uh, called Patagonia, celebrating their 45th uh, milestone uh, anniversary this year. Iconic. Yeah. Iconic. Um, we spoke to Yvonne as research for the book, and he was so moved by the topic of building things at last that um, it was a privilege that he wound up writing uh, and contributing the forward to our book. And we asked Yvonne, what is the one thing this organization has made um, that is most iconic for what you believe, that is most important to what your brand is making? And our expectation is he would refer to an item or an article of clothing. And he paused for a moment and he said, it's actually the educational facility that we've built on campus. And we said, well, tell us a bit, tell us a bit more about that. And he said, um, if you ask our accountant or CFO, or financial people, they would tell you that this is um, not an asset by a liability, that our organization spends money every year having built a school on the campus of Patagonia. But why do we do it? And he said, because I have built this business on the belief that I want to move through the world without leaving a trace. I want to leave the world beautiful, uh, beautifully for the next generation to come and enjoy it. And the only way the next generation will enjoy it is if they begin life having an appreciation for the environment that they live in. So the reason that we've built the school is to educate kids from early on to appreciate and love the world that we live in. And to me, that's a beautiful example of a leader caring so personally about what he's trying to create that actually his first question wasn't how much money can Patagonia make out of it, but what kind of contribution can we make to the world? And Patagonia today has more people who want to apply for jobs that they don't even have available then effectively they have jobs. So an organization that believes and leads with beliefs um, creates a magnetic, powerful organization for Xers um, uh, and for millennials and so on. We talk about behaving your beliefs. When Jessica Alba and Christopher Gavigan and Brian Lee and Sean Kane created The Honest Company, they did it because in part, Jessica was about to have kids. She was concerned about uh, the items and articles she put on her kids. And so she created a different kind of CPG company that put in products, uh, uh, ingredients into products that wouldn't harm them. And in so doing, she has Ivy League kids that want to work at, I shouldn't say kids, Ivy League talent that wants to work at Honest Company, not just because they pay them the most, but because they align with what they believe in. I talked about it gets better as a company that uses influence, but Deb Dugan's brand at Red, a brand that's trying to get rid of uh, AIDS in the world, effectively unites an organization of people who believe like they believe. Red doesn't think about how do we add more to the world. They take a different point of view. What can Red eliminate from the world? And in so doing, they've galvanized a young generation that says exactly how can we make the world a better place, not by adding more stuff to it, but by taking away those things that we don't need. 
Um, speaking unconventionally, the world didn't need another automotive company, and Lexus treated human beings in a way that no other automotive company did. All the others said, have a reverence for the brand, the badge, the three-pointed star. And Lexus said, what if we had a reverence for the people who got behind the wheel, who drove this thing? Um, under the heading of being perpetual, I'm a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. I grew up in Toronto. It was a once very famous hockey team. Um, the fans want that com uh, not company brand, that team to win, and they couldn't for years. And so they bring in a guy, Brendan Shanahan, an NHL all-star player who loves that brand. He's not just a manager. He loves it. And he says to the press, we're going to be really bad for a bunch of years because I'm not interested in a mediocre team. I'm aiming for something enduring, a dynasty. He changed the way the game was played. He invested in young kids who could skate really fast, who had high skill. And here we are three years into his journey where the hockey team went from being the bottom of the league to being the envy of the league. They aim high, they change the game, um, they act their beliefs, and a generation of young people are buying into them. Mark, you're We are here. This is amazing. We are here here with Mark Miller, and we are talking about uh, modern legacies, modern legacies, all the stuff that's around us, um, really through the eyes of some extraordinary individuals who've actually talking about now legacy in the making. You can get it on Amazon. It's uh, like building a long-term brand to stand out in the short-term world. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. You can follow him at Mark Miller LA, and he's the chief strategy officer of Team One at the Legacy Lab. Thanks for being here live in New York. Thank you, Mark. You're terrific. Wow, what a great storyteller. I mean, what a great, you know, you can sense purpose and passion with every word that came out of his mouth. I love it. <laughs> oh, it was deliberate. It was thoughtful. It was uh, amazing. Some great stuff. So who do we have next? We're bringing back people from the past, the present, and now back in the industry. So. Talk about someone who's deliberate and purposeful and likable. One of our favorite guests on Disrupt TV, Cindy Zoe is the Chief Marketing Officer at Level Access, a digital accessibility solutions provider responsible for driving the company's marketing, inside sales, sales uh, enablement initiatives. They put all the hard stuff on Cindy's shoulders. Uh, <laughs> level Access. Marketers today, Bala. Yeah, that's we right. We do it all. <laughs> that's right, exactly. Cindy served as Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, covering digital marketing transformation and sales effectiveness. So she went from teaching and mentoring hundreds of companies to now having to do it herself, which is great. <laughs> but the good news is Cindy has had over 18 years of practitioner experience in corporate marketing, product marketing, product management, and sales operations. She's considered an uh, industry influencer. Uh, Cindy is a frequent speaker, media contributor to over 100 articles in marketing. She was ranked number three on AR Insights Analyst Power 100 list this year. So we're, we're talking to an influencer and a trailblazer. Please follow Cindy on Twitter at C-I-N-D-Y underscore Z-H-O-U. Welcome, Cindy. Welcome back, Cindy, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks so much, Vala. Hi, Ray. I love hey, this is awesome. Look, yeah, look, I mean, it's awesome. the, the sign of an awesome analyst is the ability to weave in and out of industry, back to the analyst role, hint, hint, and <laughs> so that's really important. And as you know, so we've been hiring lots of folks from industry because we, we really believe in that. So you're back really? as a CMO, right? I you're am. Full space. And I know I had so much conversation with you about being passionate about 
getting back to B2B and being a B2B CMO. Tell us about the new role. Tell us what's kind of, you know, a little bit different, but more importantly, talk about, you know, why? Why do you love being a CMO? Hey, thanks so much, Ray. Well, you know, talking to two people, yourself and Vala, who both have been in the CMO suite uh, on seat and also for uh, B2B, you both know that it is quite an exciting time. We are constantly changing, constantly innovating. There's more expectation placed on marketing. We have to be both data scientists and creative artists. We have to know technology. We have to look at the tech stack. We got to know sales. We have to be able to influence our peers across the C-suite. It really is one of those roles where uh, you really are in the nexus of everything, so to speak. And it took a really special opportunity for me to leave a very, very wonderful position at Constellation Research, covering marketing and working with some premier brands and Intent, even Vala's company was a great client. Uh, and, uh, and it really is, you know, and, and I'm so happy to follow Mark because he talks so much about mission and purpose. And that's exactly the opportunity and what Level Access does is in the digital accessibility space, which is making technology accessible to people with disabilities and the rapidly growing aging population. Talk a little bit about your company. Talk a little bit more about what you do, what's the company's mission, and what was that thing that drew you from, frankly, one of the top analyst firms in the world? Yeah, thanks, Vala. Yeah, so uh, Level Access is in the digital accessibility space. And if you're not familiar with that, if you think about you know, the American Disabilities Act, you might have heard of Section 508, which is a government regulation and mandate. It is very much on we are helping companies make their websites, their mobile apps, any of their digital properties, quite frankly, uh, accessible to people with disabilities. And this really is one of those markets where I think before I really started talking to the company, I knew it on the peripheral because any marketer, as you're launching a new website, uh, a really good responsible design firm would say to you, you got to make sure your 508 or W3C, which is the, you know, uh, the web standard compliant. And if you think about it, there's a lot of population who uh, it's not just people with disabilities. They may not even consider themselves people with disabilities. Maybe they have color blindness for a certain you know, color spectrum or uh, the aging population wouldn't consider themselves disabled, but they're using technology. And Vala, you were just mentioning Pew Research, same stats, right? We have 67% of the elderly that's growing rapidly that are adopters of technology. So we have a growing population of people who companies can't say, well, you know what, my website is just uh, doesn't have descriptions, doesn't have, you know, the right color contrast, et cetera, and it's not usable by people with disabilities, and that's no longer okay. So that's really what the company does, yeah. It's cool. You know, that, that, that's a massive deal, and, and I think, and what's really interesting about the disability market is that a lot of these disabilities people incur as they get older. Right? They have the capability yep. and they're losing it and they're losing capabilities as they get older. And it's not just the folks that were born with those disabilities. We're seeing a growing, uh, growing market um, in terms of folks being able to access things. Like I didn't know not to use red green everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> you know, having bigger font sizes, you're like, right. I'm, like, I'm like blowing up my fonts as well. So it's right. kind of one of those things. Or blue red. Blue red. Oh my God. Yeah. Blue red is really bad too. So, so marketing has this huge role in actually delivering on accessibility. Um, how should marketers rethink about accessibility and, and compliance around behind that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so there's like two market forces that are happening right now that are really contributing to the growth of the market. One is 
there's a growing wave of corporate social responsibility. And again, Salesforce is a great example of this. While this company, you know, very much you have a chief equality officer. It's about inclusion. It's about corporate social responsibility. So what company wants to be known as, well, we don't care about the elderly or the, or the, the uh, disabled because our website is not usable by them. So that's A. Two is there's actually a growing uh, trend of lawsuits. And so lawsuits are actually doubling or tripling every single year on the digital accessibility space. So it's really, really important to kind of think about a corporate risk perspective. And so for marketers in particular, I'll share that before I started talking to Level Access, I was not that in tune into the accessibility issue besides when you design a website. But now as I'm getting more into this, I'm understanding that for marketers, we are the ones creating more content every day. We are standing up landing pages. We are standing up different digital assets. We have white papers that are PDFs in many cases. And those PDFs are not readable by screen readers or uh, for you know, different tech, uh, assistive technology that people are using. So our responsibility as marketers, particularly in the e-commerce space, if you think about it, if you're trying to shop online, it actually is a very big deal for someone with disabilities to be able to, let's say, go on target.com and be able to buy products. But if you hover over those pictures and images, and those images just have a code name like, you know, 1005.jpg, that doesn't tell you anything about the image versus it is a Patagonia green vest, you know, down vest, et cetera, with a, a deeper description. So I think that really for marketers, it's my call to action is understand this issue because your customers are the ones impacted. You know, recently I read a story, um, a, a study by McKinsey. And at, we're at this inflection point where there's going to be more people over the age of 65 than those under the age of 14 globally. So as our, as our globe gets uh, you know, older, quite frankly, it's, those are all your customers. And if they can't shop on your website, they can't, uh, in B2B, they can't go on your website and understand what you do because you don't have the capability to do that, then, then you're also losing revenue. You know, I think about, you mentioned e-commerce. I think last Sunday, uh, Alibaba sold $31 billion of goods in one day. Yeah, singles day. It's amazing yeah, in China. I mean, yeah. I think only 99 companies in the world have annual revenues greater than $31 billion. So it's phenomenal what they did. And I know last year, uh, I don't know if it was an Accenture study that said uh, about $2 billion was transacted on smart devices with voice. Yeah. Now that's a small fraction of a trillion dollar retail industry, but the fact that, you know, almost a third of the homes in the US have Amazon Alexa, a Google Home, Apple Siri, Samsung Bigsby, Telefonica Aura, all these companies are creating these Salesforce, Einstein, digital assistants where this white hot space in AI, the natural language processing logic, is creating an opportunity for people to access brands through a new and growing UI voice. How does that shape how we govern in terms of accessibility when there are products that are predominantly built with or without a screen, depending on your voice in terms of how you transact and engage? Yeah, absolutely, Val. It's a great point. And we're looking a lot into different types of voice technology as well. If you think about screen readers at its basic um, core, is that's what it is. It's actually reading the screen literally and giving that voice translation to someone who is visually impaired. So there's definitely you know, great advancements in that area. 
I think ultimately though, it's about, it's more about the, how do you actually make sure that those visual, that those um, audio descriptions actually do match the product? So I'll give you a great example. I'll go back to that Patagonia one. If you're talking about a Patagonia down uh, vest, you know, with crosshatch stitching and a YKK zipper. I mean, that becomes very descriptive. Sounds and you start the to customer. The image. The customer. <laughs> right, exactly. Versus a, you know, just a vest, a green vest, yeah. right? So, so that's the type of thing where, where digital accessibility still really has a massive role in helping to kind of make sure that even though voices is, uh, voice technology is um, accelerating, it's also the, you know, in general, there's a lot of people who are hard of hearing, et cetera. They also want to see visually. And how do we get to better description? Perfect. You know, one of, the, one of the cool things I love about what you guys are doing is the access continuum, right? And when you look at the access continuum, like where do you fit on it? How do you get at it? You walk through basically a almost a, a product, product offering management lifecycle to talk about where you actually go from design, develop, QA, release, and maintain. Right, and, and it's not just about, here's accessibility at one part of development, it's across a life cycle. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely, you know, and, and this is the thing, I, before I, um, I joined this company, I was talking a lot to, and you both know this too, when you start developing sort of like, who is your buyer, you know, who is the, the customer profile, you know, who, are, who do we need to, to speak to? And that was a big exercise for my team here, and they did awesome at it. And we realized that we were uh, talking to a lot of legal personas because of the lawsuit trends, so general counsels, chief legal officers, and then also a lot of product and UI designers. What we're missing were the marketers, you know, the brand advocates. We have so many customers that are just household brands, and you really start to look at who the audience is that you're speaking with. They actually are much more on the business side now too. They care about compliance. They care about brand. They care about you know sort of overall corporate social responsibility. And so those are all of the things where we kind of look at our overall journey, how we can help a company. It's broken out into these different stages. So a company might come to us, and, and the driver is because they got sued. Uh, someone with disabilities sued their company because I can't access your website, and you want to almost just go attack that problem. And that's fine. You can go attack that problem. We can help you with that. But ultimately, it's how do we move you into developing this into part of your continuous release cycle? Like I mentioned, marketers are creating more content and digital properties every day. How do you make sure that you pull the marketers into the process so that when they create their next landing page, that it is already accessible? and you don't have to worry about retrofitting later. So that's really what we do, and we have something very unique in the market as um, the largest vendor in the space, is that we actually have a program. If you follow our program and you meet certain conditions, we'll actually give you certification and indemnify you from lawsuits. So that's something that's really unique that um, we help a lot of our customers with. But there's so many companies I can think of that are, you know, I consider them vanguards of inclusion. Yes. You know, yes. one of our customers, Aetna Insurance, they, they were really proud. And they said to me, Cindy, we were not sued. We are just a company that really cares about leveling the playing field for all of our customers and patients. You know, then there's a, another company which sends us a very moving letter about what we're doing. And Ray, I can't name them, but 
let's just say it's oh, an airline that you and I fly a lot. <laughs> so if you follow Ray's Twitter, you'll probably figure out who he is. on airlines, of course. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it really is amazing. Some premier, premier brands that, uh, that we work with. It's quite a pleasure. Your, uh, your company is uh, Level Access is sponsoring the accessibility for the historic event, Our People-Centered Digital Future. Uh, what does the event mean to the company? Talk to us about uh, this, this historic event. Yeah, well, I'm so excited about this one. You know, when, when Ray first told me that, uh, that Vint Cerf, Tim Berners-Lee, Dane Wendy Hall, and all of these internet founders, you know, really the fathers and mothers of, of the digital age were all gathering together because they're celebrating the UN 70th anniversary of human rights. I, I looked at that and, and immediately went to our CEO, Tim, and I said, Tim, we got to be a part of this. You know, this is something where it's historic. It's something that's deeply personal and, and, and right in line with our mission at Level Access, which is really, it's about making the world an equal playing field for everyone. It's digital equality for everyone, regardless of, you know, people with disabilities or the aging, the elderly, et cetera. So that was so meaningful to us and we're so proud to be a sponsor of it. And we're actually providing the live sign interpretation, sign language interpretation um, at the event. And, uh, and yeah, so, so we want to be a part of history and, and excited about that. Yeah, okay, we're really excited. We're really excited to have you there. And, and this, we're going to live stream. We think there's going to be a good number of folks, especially people around the world. Absolutely. It is the 70th anniversary of human rights uh, from the UN when the charter was signed in San Francisco. More importantly, uh, the World Economic Forum is now going to make an announcement about a paper they're doing. Oh, the wow. And Vince Surf and Tim Berners-Lee are going to make a call to action. So we're really excited and a lot of wonderful sponsors that are there, including yourself. So thank you very, very much uh, for being there. So. Oh, my pleasure. I can't wait for it. And, uh, and really anything that we can do to, to help out, don't, don't, uh, don't hesitate, Ray. You know so how to find one me. Of the big things. <laughs> and, and make sure to get, make sure you get your, all your registrations. If you're looking for it, everybody, you know, the, the event is out there. And uh, that's why I wanted to feature what you're doing. So this has been great. We're, we're talking about, you know, what's hot, what's going on. Bala, what do you have left? Uh, my last question is, give, give, give some advice to CMOs, you know, uh, put on your analyst hat on one side and <laughs> a practitioner. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe someone who was away from being a practitioner for a few years, even though they're well-read, even though they attend conferences and they work with analysts, but now the baton is handed to them and now they have to sharpen the saw of being a practitioner. What yes. was the first few things you had to do the first few weeks? Like even having a staff meeting, you mentioned you and your team wanted to identify which personas you serve. You know, um, what are some of the things that you did in the first 30 days or your 30, 60, 90 day plan that other CMOs can benefit from? Oh, thank you so much, Val. I love this question. And let me just uh, share, I was at a speaking engagement and I'm, I'm so happy to, to continue to kind of evangelize marketing and CMOs. And I was speaking at an event last week, actually. And I was talking about, you know, every year Spencer Stewart does this study. It's the CMO tenure study. And CMOs have the shortest tenure amongst the C-suite. You know, if you think about CEOs, on average, it's about eight years, you know, uh, there's uh, the chief financial officer, the chief people officer, HR they typically are running between you know, five to six years. But you look at the CMO, they're only between three to four years of tenure. 
And then even just two days ago, Spencer Stewart actually put out another report where you look at the overall number of CMOs that actually were removed from their position uh, over the past year, it was a staggeringly high number. So the number one root cause of this really is a misalignment between the CEO and the CMO and the board, quite frankly, the expectations. So CMOs are expected to be voice of the customer, blend art and science, be the data scientist I mentioned earlier, uh, also promote culture and be able to build a team. And so my number one advice to any CMO, like you know, going back from analyst to practitioner, is number one, make sure that within your plan, your 30, 60, 100 day plan, that you have a solid understanding of the expectations that your CEO is requesting. What are the drivers? And talk in business terms. You know, I, I know a lot of CMOs, they love to say like, oh, we have so many MQLs, right? Marketing qualified leads, or we got so many more additional followers on Twitter. And those are all good, but really what you wanna get to is, what are the key things that are important to the company? Is it customer lifetime value, right, LTV? And if that's the case, how do you start to align and design your program so that you're more focused on customer retention? Or is it on new demand generation? If that's more important than product you know, input, et cetera, start to prioritize by really understanding what is it that your company, your CEO, your board, they're looking for and start there. Excellent advice. Excellent, as always. <laughs> Thank you. We are live here with CM uh, with Cindy Zoe, CMO of Level Access. More importantly, Constellation alumni, and more importantly, she's going to be there at the People Center Digital Future Event, December tenth, out there in San Jose at the Fairmont. You can follow Cindy at C I N D Y underscore Z H O U. Thanks for coming back. Thank you so Cindy, much, you both. You were terrific. You were terrific. And more importantly, stepping in for a co-host all those years. I know. Hey, anytime. Anytime. I might call you. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. Right. Very cool. Well, yeah. now we're going to transition into the next future. So yeah. who do we have here? You know, uh, Ray, as, as uh, you all know, I'm from Boston, and we just, you know, won a baseball world championship. So oh, I'm man. All analogy. <laughs> this is our cleanup hitter spot. This is where we bring up a power hitter expecting a grand slam. And with that, we have Nicole France, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation. Nicole's focusing on digital marketing, sales effectiveness, and customer experience. So great transition from Mark and Cindy talking to Nicole. Nicole Research examines the interrelationship between sales, marketing, customer engagement, and how to make it work effectively. Uh, Nicole evaluates the tools as well as the principles and practices that generate the best results. With over 20 years of experience, so Nicole started when she was 10, uh, both technology <laughs> analyst and marketeer, Nicole has a unique perspective on both the trends and the practice of effectiveness in terms of customer engagement. Uh, throughout career, uh, Nicole has focused on successfully adopting technology capabilities and the transformative impact they have on customers. At the end of the day, your investment thesis is hopefully with the customer at the center of the decisions you make. Please follow Nicole on Twitter at I-N-F-R-A-N-C-E. Welcome, Nicole, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Al. I'll just correct you and say it's actually L-N, France. Uh, although hey, I know it, 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 it reads like in France, 
Yeah. From France, not in France. So, um, and I and I should say as well, thank you for that introduction. It's a good thing I'm not wearing my Dodgers T-shirt as a, uh, <laughs> oh, you know, but uh, that's okay. We're getting used to losing at the World Series. It seems to be a continuing trend. You have a great uh, team. You have a great. Uh, team. <laughs> just not quite great enough, apparently. <laughs> Either way, literally maybe three plays to find that whole series. But anyway, it was it was a nail biter to the end. That's what it, was. Was. it was. Oh yeah, that was that was one of these. So, but hey, welcome, welcome, and Thank this is you. a public welcome to you coming to the Constellation, um, getting a you know debut on Disrupt TV. Uh, but more importantly, look, this isn't your first show. This is not your first rodeo. You get it. You know what it means to be an analyst. You went back in industry. But what made you come back, and and why us? I mean, what 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 drew you? It's a good question, and I I I'm gonna add a little to the love fest here because not only is it fantastic to be on Disrupt TV, it's um it's really a great honor to be part of Constellation. Um, I'll tell you, Ray. You know, I think um once you're an analyst, you're always an analyst. I I doubt you disagree with that. It's something about the way that you see the world. And it's something I've always kept with me, regardless of, of whatever job I was doing. And, you know, I've been lucky enough in my most recent roles to really be looking at digital transformation in a really broad sense, you know, looking at where the, the economic value, not just the addressable market, but where the real value to the overall economy and across industry sectors is really coming from in terms of digital transformation what it makes possible, you know, what new doors it opens up uh, in all kinds of different ways, not only for how we do things, but what it is we're doing in the first place, right? And it also made me start thinking about that in the context of the roles that I have had as a marketer and working very closely with sales as well. And what it made me realize is that, you know, if you look at digital transformation today, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, I think that the thing that is most important is knowing who your customers are, understanding them, and engaging them effectively. And um, technology has a huge role to play in that, but it only really works if you keep that main thing the main thing, right? Um, so when I had the opportunity to come and join you guys, uh, and of course, I know Ray because everybody knows who Ray is. Uh, and I, and I, I, I know that the, the constellation uh, extended group as well, it was really just too good of an opportunity to pass up, you know, to take that um, benefit of my, my analyst view of the world where I'm continually trying to observe what's happening and make some sense of it and really turn it into uh, some guidance for what the hell we should actually be doing with this stuff to make it more effective and apply that to an area that I feel very strongly about having spent so much time in it, which is really all about customer engagement. Sure, sure. You know, wherever I go when I say I'm with Disrupt TV, they're like, oh, you're Ray's co-host. I'm like, oh, <laughs> no, I get the I'm Ray's co-host. I don't know what I got to do. I mean, get all this cool stuff. <laughs> I think I need like 3 million followers before I'm not Ray's co-host. But anyway. Uh, uh, it might never happen, you know. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to realize that. Yeah, and I'm perfectly comfortable with that. It's an honor to be Ray's co-host. Um, but but okay, so so I work with a lot of analysts, and uh, very few have had a mix of strong practitioner as well as research and analyst um, experience and background. So how how much of the practitioner work and that practical work of running sales, measuring, uh, running marketing, measuring sales effectiveness, 
building a cohesive culture where you it's a team sport, how you market, sale, and service customers shape your views as an analyst? It's a good question. Um, I feel almost like I've been an anthropologist doing really deep field work for the last 12 years um, across a wide variety of different marketing roles um, and in different parts of the world. I, you know, I've worked really, really closely with sales always, uh, often with customer service, with services teams whose whole role is engaging and, and supporting and working with customers. So for me, uh, what I've really gotten is I think a very clear sense of what it's actually like in the natural habitat uh, for sales, marketing folks, uh, and, and customer service or customer support. And that's really pretty critical because I think we have a tendency as technologists to always see the possibilities and the ideal kind of objectives that we have yeah. for, for what we think ought to happen. You know, what is the perfect world? What's the ideal world? And the one that we actually inhabit is anything but that, right? Mm -hmm. So what I think is really critical coming back to the analyst world with this perspective is that I can, I think, see the difference between um, what is ideal and what is practical and how can we let um, the quest for perfection avoid getting in the way of doing something that's actually way more effective than what we're doing now, right? This is the classic problem. Yeah. Oh, Ray, you're on mute again. <laughs> I was saying, all that old stuff you propose, you don't, you don't like? You don't remember? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, and it's, you know, it, it, here's the other thing, too. I mean, this is, this is part of what makes being an analyst fun. It's part of what makes using all this cool stuff so challenging, too. It's always changing, right? This is always a moving target. Um, here's where I start sounding like a real techie nerd, but, you know, uh, we always have conversations about reference architectures. Has anybody ever managed to achieve in implementation the actual reference architecture? And has that lasted long enough not to be outpaced by the next iteration? I, I, I would love to see an example. <laughs> if you know one, send it to me because I just don't think that ever really happens, right? It's true. It's true. <laughs> we, 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 we learn to be so much better at, we learn to be so much better at being practical. And, and I think that's, that's very important to have the industry experience. A lot of folks start out as analysts and never get a chance to work in industry. And that's also very detrimental because you don't understand how product managers think, offering managers think, no. what happens with sales and marketing and that interplay. And, uh, and, and you're in a really hot space. I mean, this is the intersection. CRM is dead. CX is dead. I mean, this is really about the intersection of CX and sales and marketing are all coming together. And it's happening right now, right? It's more than just it the is. stacks. <laughs> No, it is. I, it's funny. I mean, Ray, I know that you and I were having conversations uh, before I joined about, you know, my view of the world, what I really care about, what I, what I want to be able to, to talk about and help customers with. And as you know, I'm getting on my soapbox here, but I feel really, really passionately that for all of the amazing things that we can do with the technology tools that have been developed and that are continuing to come out, um, far too many companies that I see have really lost focus on that fundamental aspect of understanding customers. And, you know, not just doing it from a siloed perspective, but really having a comprehensive view that everyone in the organization understands and buys into, and that, that runs the gamut from, you know, not just informing how you're marketing your offerings and how you try to communicate and engage with customers and, and how you sell to them effectively, 
but all the way back to what is the core strategy? What is it that you're selling? How are you defining your offerings based on what you really understand of your customers' needs and motivations and priorities and the way they think and, and, and what it is they're really going to act on, right? And sometimes it's a matter of knowing customers even better than they know themselves, right? Um, what was really interesting to me is here I am, you know, I think, uh, I think this is my, what is it, the, the 15th of the 16th of the month today, I started on the first. Um, and already this week, we've had two big announcements that I think really validate this idea that, that having to take that not only holistic view, I mean, it's, we've talked about holistic views of the customer for as long as I've been in the industry, mm -hmm. um, but really sort of making sure that everyone's got a common understanding and is acting in concert around that uh, is, is absolutely happening. So you have on one side um, SAP acquiring Qualtrics because they really understand the need to, to build this kind of digital feedback loop, including some direct engagement with customers about things like brand perception and product perception and, uh, you know, ultimately their, their experience of your organization. Um, on the other hand, you have things like Zendesk announcing that they're getting into the CRM game, which I'm sure Vala is a separate conversation that we could have as well. But to me, what's interesting about both of those things is you're seeing this perspective where it's really all about trying to generate some better insights about customers and about the way that you engage with them throughout the life cycle and putting that at the center of the whole set of operations. And if there's one thing that to me is absolutely a central premise of digital transformation is that you really need to break down the ways you've been doing things in the past and fundamentally rethink them, not just based on what the technology can do, but ways you can really improve that entire type of engagement. Sure, sure. You know, I suspect the answer to this, this question that I'm about to ask may be a function of industry, company size, uh, maturity level in terms of how you can capture data, analyze, and act. But um, you know, I'm a CMO or a chief customer officer. I'm like, Nicole, I just got back from Davos and for five days, all I heard was blockchain, AI, IOT, immersive experience with AR and VR, 5G is going to create edge computing and change the world. What do I do? I only have a, I only have a, a, a dollar to invest. What are the two, <laughs> what are one of the two technologies I should be thinking about? How do we guide? I mean, the MarTech stack alone is 6,000 companies. Um, how do we advise CMOs or C CCOs to build, uh, a, a, you know, an informed uh, investment thesis when it comes to technology? So several comments. First is, all of these technologies are so fascinating in terms of the, the potential that they have, right? I mean, sometimes it's about being able to collect information that we just simply didn't have in the past. It's gonna give us new kinds of insights and understanding into you know, behavior, consumption patterns, um, product uh, activity and, and usage, all these kinds of things that, that ultimately are gonna play into what we design for the future. Uh, some of it is about new channels, right? And the speed of those channels. Um, sometimes it's about technologies that are actually going to help us streamline and improve the way that we operate internally that ultimately does have a really big impact on how we engage with customers, but it might be a little bit more indirect. I think the, the big challenge for all organizations, and I couldn't have asked for a better tee up in, in responding to this and having Mark and Cindy come before me, is that it's 
all about understanding your mission and your purpose and your objectives, right? And the reality is it's not going to be the same for every organization. It's not even going to be the same for every company in the same industry, right? Um, so I, I wish I could give you a nice, easy rule of thumb for how to invest your dollar, Vala, but the reality is it's a much more, it's a much more complex Absolutely. set of I, I, I kind of knew that this was a kind of a nonsense question, but... <laughs> Well, have, but let me tell you, get, let me tell you. You have to get blockchain and 5G and IoT into disruption. In there, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and all of this stuff, I, yeah, you know, yeah. I, exactly, exactly. I come by my glasses, honestly. Honestly, I am the nerdy girl. I do actually super dig all of this cool stuff. Oh, no, so do I. But, you know, let me. Your answer is correct. It, 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 I mean, it was very robust in that it is about new channels. It, it is about new delivery models. So it is about gleaning insights with you know, wearable technologies or devices in a smart home. And at the end of the day, machine learning, deep learning, natural language processing, uh, you know, computer visioning, all of that stuff will build that, again, anticipatory muscle for marketeers or companies yep. to really anticipate and deliver that experience that will delight a customer based on all this contextual intelligence that will come from the fusion of these technologies. So, you know, I, we can, you know, nerd out on all we of this. All day, but well, well, let me give you a counterpoint to that though. Um, yeah. You know, the thing for me is as much as I love technology, I think we also have to be very realistic and practical about when it makes sense to use it and when it doesn't. And again, going back to this idea that, you know, not all companies will have the same answer. Um, so I'm a customer of both Trader Joe's and Whole Foods both of which I have to leave my little island here on Catalina to go and access, but that's a different story. Um, and it's interesting because you couldn't- You'll have drones you, delivering your whole food. <laughs> we're, we're voting anybody who wants to test drone delivery out to the island, we will happily be your, your, your population of guinea pigs. Just give me a call. Um, but no, it's really interesting because you can't really find two more sort of antithetical views on how to really effectively understand your customer, right? I mean, you look at Trader Joe's on one hand, they absolutely don't track any customer data. Uh, they don't sell anything online. Um, they still deliver the frequent flyer by mail to your mailbox and they still use, you know, the cute little Victorian clip art because it's royalty free and it's cheap. And I think that, I think the frequent, uh, you know, the fearless flyer actually started life as a mimeograph. I mean, that's how far back we're going here. Um, it is, it did, at least the snippet. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's amazing. I, I, you know, as I age in life, I find it comforting that the frequent flyer really hasn't changed because I like to think I haven't either, you know? But anyway, um, but you know, the, the interesting thing to me is it's not like Trader Joe's doesn't use technology. They definitely do, right? And they're doing a whole bunch of really interesting analysis but that really is not at all prevalent in the way that they directly engage with their customers. And even the way that their most senior people get feedback and input about customers and customers' preferences. Right. Now you contrast that with, with Whole Foods come Amazon and you know, you've, got a, you've got Amazon also doing these like contactless, you know, pick up and go kind of, kind of food shops that's not Whole Foods yet. But, you know, we're talking about a context where there is probably no organization that knows more about customers buying patterns than Amazon does through all of these digital contact points. So radically different views, radically different styles of investment in technology, both very successful companies in different ways. And Amazon will Trader Joe's in three years. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Trader Joe's still has the highest revenue per square foot in their stores. No, 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 no. I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. 
No, they do. It's all about the snacks, man. You can't walk out of there without any snacks. I mean, that thing just, it crushes you. Snacks and wine and you're done. That's amazing. Hey, so last question. I know we're running out of time, but I think it's really important. You've lived outside of the U.S. more than you've been in the U.S. Tell us a little about that. What, what kind of perspective does sure. that give you in terms of your coverage? You know, it's taught me an awful lot. The first thing is probably that you really don't know your own assumptions until they're challenged. <laughs> uh, it's amazing, right? I mean, um, so one, it, this, this is a little bit of a dark example, but it really hit home for me living in England. Um, <clears throat> I realized at one point, you know, there was a story about uh, a guy whose house was broken into and he shot the intruder. No one died, everyone survived, it was all fine. And this was a really, really big deal in the UK, the idea that, that anyone got shot during this whole sort of situation. And what I realized was, you know, coming from Los Angeles, especially, you know, if your home is broken into, you just assume that whoever is breaking in has a gun. In England, that's absolutely not the case. I mean, most Met police officers don't carry guns. I mean, it's, it's a huge, huge mindset change. So just one example. Um, on a brighter note, you know, I mean, I think what I really got from that was a deep understanding and appreciation for the really significant and important aspects of what can sometimes be some very subtle cultural differences. Uh, so I, I had the opportunity to walk, work across Europe and, and uh, EMEA, and I had also the opportunity to work really, really closely in a bunch of different organizations with some fantastic salespeople and customers. And what I really learned is, you know, on one side, that absolutely critical, intangible, qualitative understanding of, again, your customers and where you do business. And on the other side, the fact that it is really very different to be out of headquarters you know, way out in the field, making it all happen. And, you know, the kinds of skill sets and abilities that you see far from headquarters are often amazing and often vastly underrated sure. uh, by HQ. So more on that, I'm sure to come. But, but we'll talk more about that. Thumbnail tidbits, yeah. <laughs> well, we're here with our latest analyst, Nicole France, and most importantly, our new VP and principal analyst at Constellation Research, looking at the end-to-end -end flow of what happens in campaign to commerce, the death of CRM. Now, more importantly, <laughs> talking about what's happening, what's next, and what customer officers and marketers should care about next. You can follow her on Twitter, at L-N-F-R-A-N-C-E, and more importantly, check her out at the Constellation uh, website, constellationr.com. Check out her new blog, and more importantly, follow her research. Thanks a lot for being on the show, Nicole. Welcome and welcome. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Thank you both. Terrific. What a, what a fantastic uh, guest. And uh, Nicole did hit a grand slam. Um, some show announcements. Uh, we're we're going to take next Friday off. So happy Thanksgiving to all the folks watching us from the U.S. Uh, we will return with what we call the best and brightest analyst show, where we have Esteban Kolsky, founder of ThinkJar, uh, Jesus Hoyos, uh, founder uh, and principal analyst at Solvis Consulting, and Brent Leary, who's partner of CR, a partner at CRM Essentials. So three incredibly bright analysts joining us to talk about maybe predictions for 2019 and a recap of 2018. And of course, uh, I'm looking forward to attending um, the incredible uh, iconic event in San Jose on December 10th. 
We have uh, joining us Tim Berners-Lee, who's the founder, inventor of the web. Uh, he launched the web, introduced the web. I think the project was called Inquire in 1989. And then in 1994, uh, the World Wide Web was introduced. We have Vince Cerf, who's the chief uh, digital analyst at Google. He is the founder, inventor of TCP IP and considered by most as the grandfather of the internet. Just two of the amazing 20 plus uh, keynote speakers and luminaries who are going to be there. Ray, would you like to add any more comments to this amazing event in San Jose on the 10th? And that's just getting started. The World Economic Forum is going to unveil one of their new papers. We've got uh, the United Nations, their senior human rights officer that's going to be there. And more importantly, we're going to talk about the future. We've got a lot of conversations about what that digital future is going to look like, how it can be shaped, what your role is in it, and it's going to be live streamed as well. So for those who aren't attending, we'll catch you and give you the live stream details soon. And for those who are registering, make sure you register quickly um, as well, because we've got some limited spots and, of course, some limited hotel rooms for those who are booking hotels. So San Jose Fairmont, December 10th, we'll see you all there. And more importantly, we'll see you on the next Disrupt TV, show number 130. Oh, my yeah. God. So uh, I believe we're going to surpass our 300th unique guest uh, in, in the upcoming week. And I uh, look forward to seeing you guys, not next week, but the week after with our analyst uh, show with predictions 2019 and recap of 2018. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching. Closing remarks, Ray. Oh, how much, man. Everybody have fun. Happy Friday. Safe travels. Um, Six hours going 24 miles was not fun in the November experience, uh, but I uh, hope everyone's safe and uh, getting home safely. See you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.